Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 191, and today's guest is Edward Lando, angel investor and co-founder of Conduit. It's incredibly impressive to see what Edward has accomplished throughout his career. He's a serial entrepreneur, board member, and an investor in over 200 companies. That's right, over 200 companies. Oh, and he's still in his 20s. His latest company is called Conduit, which he co-founded with Shri Kohli. Conduit is creating a highly curated and value-added marketplace with the goal of connecting the best operator investors and founders who are building the next generation of startups around the world. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the importance of building a network even from a young age, Edward's background and his decision to move from France to the United States to attend the University of Pennsylvania, his early entrepreneurial pursuits, how he got into angel investing, and the details on what he's targeting for making investments, a deep dive into Conduit in terms of how it all works, and how it is differentiated in the marketplace from other platforms, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that every Monday morning, we send out two weekly digest emails? There's one for Boston and one for New York. It is your weekly email to stay connected to all the must-know information from the local tech scene. It includes information on companies, jobs, deals, events, and more. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email and look for the weekly tech buzz to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Edward. Edward, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you because, um, you know, it's, uh, like I don't want to like make this about your age, but it is pretty impressive at the age that you're at, that uh, what you've accomplished. And what I think is cool about um, the, the world today is the access to do things that maybe you couldn't have before, such as angel investing, right? I think when I was in my 20s, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that I could... You know, I, I don't know what people are writing checks for in terms of the amounts those days, but now you can write you know, a check for a couple thousand dollars in a company, which before I don't think that was ever something we knew about or could actually do. So uh, I think it's super cool what people have access to right now. But one of the things I also noticed about you, Edward, is um, you know, I think Rob Go from Next View Ventures had a comment about your new company on Twitter and was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Uh, Edward is one of the best connectors I know. This should be a terrific, terrific initiative. So it showed me that you understood the power of building a network early on. So what advice would you give to you know, people you know, maybe in college, coming out of college, about you know, the power of building a network and building one that you know, hopefully is, is meaningful for your professional career? Yeah, definitely. I think, well, one part of my insight might be linked to the fact that I'm, I'm actually half French and I grew up in, 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 in Paris. And, you know, I think there's a strong culture there from a sort of, you know, how do they approach networking? How do they approach making relationships? And I'm also half Canadian and I'm quite Americanized, as you can hear. Uh, I think, you know, Americans love this idea of sort of networking. And, uh, and I think obviously that's if you're in a major city uh, in your 20s or whatever, that's, that's one of the biggest opportunities out there to just venture out and go into a room and, and form new relationships. I, I think I've seen some people do it in a very uh, authentic way. And then I've seen some people do it in an immediately transactional way. And, and what I've tried to do is I think that uh, I am quite curious about other people. Uh, my, my dad, you know, uh, is retired, but was a journalist for about 30 years. And I love learning about new people. And I'm kind of interested in like different personalities. And I also like the idea that, uh, you know, I have, I'm, I'm lucky. I think I have a couple like really close friends. I like the idea that uh, you go to a new event, you go to a new thing. Uh, you might discover someone who you want to go sort of quite deep with. So I would say there, there is a way to, uh, 
to make all of these quick uh, interactions quite quite meaningful or quite potentially meaningful. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, networking has been the key to my career for as long as, you know, college and, uh, you know, and it's, I'm a big believer in what comes around goes around. So pay it forward. Cause that anytime you take that meeting where you're like, Oh, do I really have time to meet this person? You still get something out of it. And then two years later, that connection could be something like, so it's just, you never, like, I never say no to meetings, like, even though it might be hard to schedule. Yeah. And I think about that as well in terms of like, I'm sure this has happened to you. There's some meetings where I have no expectations or maybe I just do them because maybe someone else asked me or, or, or whatnot. And I come in and like, this is going to be a waste of my time. Let's do it quickly. And that ends up being the most meaningful meeting of the day. And then there's others where I was very excited and I thought, wow, this person's going to be great or sort of, you know, so helpful or whatever. And, it, and it's not. And so it is, uh, you know, we all have you know, the same amount of time in our day and we can't go on sort of like only doing random meetings, but it is an interesting question as to, how um, how much serendipity you should allow for in, in your day, and um, obviously, you know, it with this new new company conduit. That's that's a big part of our insight where we we try to engineer that a little bit. You know, sort of like in, in, in a virtual sense, like you're in this room, and you might be surprised by you know which uh, which fish bites, and sort of you know who you get to meet, and what they might actually bring to you, and vice versa. Well, let's talk about your background a little bit deeper. You did give a glimpse of you know where you're originally from, but you know, so talk about you know, your experience, like you as a child, like, were you always like curious, like what, what were the attributes that kind of made you, you know, kind of, and then obviously where you went from there? Yeah. Uh, I think interestingly, the, as a kid, I was, I was much more on the introverted side. Uh, even now I think I might be, you know, maybe I'm an extroverted introvert or an introverted extrovert. Uh, but I was, I grew up reading a lot. You know, I think your, your parents obviously have a big influence on you and, uh, I, they didn't put computer science books on my table. They just put, you know, plays by Moliere or by, you know, Shakespeare or whatever. And, and I loved reading and loved writing ever since I was a kid. And those were, those were my, my favorite classes in, in high school. And I thought I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and I could just, you know, this is rare these days with all our screens, but I could focus on a piece of paper or on a book for four or five hours without looking up. And it was awesome. And uh, I was a mix of shy uh, and at times, you know, a little sort of like socially uh, awkward at events. And, and then also um, very, very sort of like prone to getting energized around people. Like I, I, other people give me energy and I loved uh, sort of like making new friends and like, you know, going sort of like having new experiences with them. So it was, a, it was an interesting mix of the two. And then what led you down the path to, to come to the U.S. to study at Penn? Uh, I think, first of all, I, I having grown up in Paris, you know, I, I, I loved it, but I always, in my mind, thought one day I'm going to move to the U.S. My my dad, as mentioned, is from Canada and, and actually lived in the U.S. For, for about 30 years. And I was always attracted to this idea of, you know, that's where I'll go to college and that's where I'll start my life. And it's the sort of more entrepreneurial place. At the time, I think back in in France, there was, there was a little bit more of the sense that, um, it wasn't really possible to to build uh, exciting new businesses. People were a little bit depressed as far as like, you know, you can't really sort of do anything here. There's too much bureaucracy. You know, they don't reward people who want to build new things. I think that climate has changed and France is much more exciting now uh, as our as, as other places in Europe. But I was really like, this is where I'm going to go and and do things because this is the country where where that happens. And so, um, yeah, I moved uh, when I was 18 for college and, and went to Penn as an undergrad and absolutely loved it. Um, it was, it was interesting. It was, uh, 
it's quite dry to study business when you're 18. And frankly, some of these classes like taking, you know, accounting or, or whatever, uh, when, when you're just starting college, I think is a little, is a little boring. Uh, but the quality of the people and sort of the, the work ethic that they teach you there is incredible. And then I got to explore other things uh, outside of class. And I, I got to, I, I started reading a lot more. I started uh, working on my own novel. And I also started working on my own projects. I taught myself how to code uh, in, in my first year of college and just started building projects with friends. And uh, in my second, third and fourth year, doing that a lot more than going to classes and doing my homework. So, uh, so I was going to ask you, so the entrepreneurship path and, and, you know, being a builder, an operator. So how, how did, how did you kind of, like you said, maybe you were thinking of doing that anyways, but you wanted to be a writer. So you were kind of, you were studying economics, you know, so it's, if I would, uh, if I would, you know, current Edward criticizes past Edward or, or whatever, I don't know if I could have changed anything is that I didn't ask, I asked a fair amount of questions, but I didn't ask enough questions when I was, uh, when I was in high school and I thought, you know what, I want to do business. I don't really know what business is. What's like the best business school, Warden, great, let me just apply there. And didn't do that much more research. And I got in, I was like, I like parts of this, you know, and parts of like the, the, the uh, some of the people that I meet and others I find, you know, it's like, why are you already kind of like a boring corporate person when you're 18? Why are you not sort of more curious or more sort of uh, excited to try new things? And I made several of my best friends there. So I, I, I think I was uh, more lucky than not, uh, but, um, but from the business thing, I think, I, you know, I, I was always like ambitious and wanted to do things. I was totally open to the idea that I might like write novels instead of uh, instead of doing business. I think the the way it came about is meeting other people who wanted to build things outside of uh, outside of class and realizing that in a weird way you could put up something that that would become real quite quickly, and you could have people interact with it, whether you know they play with your product or they buy things off your website or whatnot. And that was a very visceral moments. I, I'd never been able to sort of like tangibly build anything that was online or whatever before. And now I could, you know, get into my, my terminal and, and write something and put it up there and, and have other people react to it. So that was, that was very exciting. And that's kind of how I stumbled into it. What's been, I think, really great about most, um, you know, Penn, you know, uh, Harvard, you know, a lot of these schools didn't really have a deeply enriched entrepreneurial culture. Like people would go to management consulting, they would go to investment banking, but that's been very vibrant now for a good stretch. And, you know, when I think of Penn, it's like, you know, you know, Warby Parker and, you know, so many great startups have come out of that institution. So it's, uh, yeah. And it's interesting how like one story like can cause other ones. That's kind of like how you build an ecosystem. Like those people become like legends or sort of inspirations for the next classes. And then suddenly you build a culture that, that works on a bunch of other things. You know, I think Stanford obviously famously has this where like everyone, you know, sort of is attracted more to the entrepreneurial side. And I just think that that's like compounding, that's culture creating more culture. There was, there is a certain compounding at Warden where like, you know, a couple months into college, I went to a finance or banking recruiting session. I put on a suit and a tie and I went there and I was chatting with one of the recruiters and they're like, do you want to do investment banking or do you want to do like, uh, asset, whatever it was. And I was like, I don't really know what these different things are. I'm just, you know, I'm here because I, I guess I, I might be interested in working at your like bank or, or whatever, but I was sort of drawn into it because there's so much inertia there, sort of momentum towards like, this is the direction that a lot of people go into. Uh, but it takes only a couple of examples to change that culture. And I definitely think that our year, we were very lucky and we, we had a couple of other sort of entrepreneurial types and we all ended up sort of, you know, doing things together and kind of getting in healthy amounts of trouble together. 
That's awesome. So, so what were, uh, what were some of the companies that you built either in college or post-college? Cause we're going to talk about your angel investing. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the companies first. In college. So I taught myself how to code with, uh, with my friend, Abby, who I ended up working with on several things afterwards. Uh, we were actually kind of rivals for a while where I, I was building this idea with another friend of like, let's do a Pandora for shopping. Like let's go on this website. And you can see this, this, this one brand, let's say J crew. And then maybe you want to buy one thing from J crew and then you click next. And then you're on another brand's website and you can just all, you know, add these things to your cart and then check out uh, from all these brands at the same place. And we were sort of building a new sort of like shopping experience. And then Abby at the same time was building, I guess, an early version of trunk club. If you, if you remember trunk club, like the subscription box for clothes. And, uh, and then we were sort of converging on the same thing. I think his model was probably a little bit better and we were competing a little bit for a while. And then we ended up, uh, you know, teaming up and, and, and building pretty much anything that uh, we may have been intrigued about and, and, and came across our minds. There's another idea that was kind of fun where another very good friend of mine, Israeli guy, Yagil, like we were just sitting, uh, having lunch. And uh, I think this was a silly moment. We just saw some people walk by and we wanted to like say something funny about them. And we were like, wouldn't it be cool if like we could share it and like other people from the campus could also see it. So we, we were like, let's just build it this afternoon. And we went back to my dorm and we both thought that we could teach ourselves how to build mobile apps in, in one afternoon. It took us about a month, but we launched it. It was called Notice and it allowed you to, uh, it was a kind of a pretty, pretty simple app that allowed you to flirt with someone or compliment someone from your campus. And we didn't want any negativity. We didn't want any uh, the sort of trashing uh, like you get on Yik Yak. And we, we went pretty viral in a few campuses and it was very fun to make something. I remember sitting in class and seeing like a couple different people in front of me in the rows in front of me have it open on their phones. And I was like, that's pretty fun. Uh, and so that was, the, that was one of my more, more memorable moments. And then the, the company that sort of transitioned me out of college was uh, I had the chance to meet another very good friend, Emil, who teaches statistics at Warden. He's a prodigy sort of uh, math graduate from Harvard, PhD from Warden. Uh, young lecturer who's actually, I think, the most popular lecturer there. And we met, I think, playing tennis and we became friends. And then I, I took his really difficult class just to have him as, a, as an instructor in, in probability. And uh, I just decided that I wanted to team up with him. And so I taught him how to code in like a weekend because he's, he's brilliant. And so he picked it up. And we built this company called GovPredict, or this website called GovPredict, which was not my idea, uh, but which, which is essentially a Bloomberg for government. So if you want to track what's happening, if you want to see uh, which groups to talk to, if you want to make certain things happen, uh, that was that was the general idea. And I'd always wanted to get into Y Combinator. Uh, we applied to Y Combinator and we got in summer 2014, which was the year that I graduated, right when I graduated. So that took me to the West Coast. Got it. Okay. So at what point did you start getting into angel investing? That happened. So I wish it had been during that batch because there were a couple of incredible companies there. I think a couple of unicorns like Checker or, 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 or whatnot. Uh, but I, I, you know, didn't have capital to invest at the time. Uh, but about a year or two later, I, I convinced Abi from earlier in the story that I mentioned to quit his job. He was working in private equity at, at Apollo. And, uh, I think his, you know, everyone was very proud of him, his parents and so on. And I was like, you're wasting your time. We should be working together. And we, uh, we teamed up with another good friend of ours and uh, built a coding boot camp for college students, which um, essentially was supposed to give 
college kids the same experience that we'd had of like learning how to build real stuff. Even if they were computer science students, they might not have learned how to build real products and then help them get jobs in tech. So we bootstrapped that for a few years to, to a decent size. And we started getting, you know, some, some capital to, to invest in interesting things. And then at the same time, I raised a little vehicle from, from a few friends to be able to write larger checks into companies. And I did that a few times since. Um, and then, you know, uh, sort of, I guess, started with mostly people around me. I think one of the, one of my strengths and weaknesses as a, as a founder is that I get excited about, uh, several things. And I think, you know, some of the best founders are like, nothing else exists. You know, only my payroll software exists in the world. That's my lens and I'm going to make it a huge company. And I'm like, that's exciting, but you know, you could also build this other thing. Uh, and so this is a way for me to indulge and to be like, this is exciting. I want to be part of it. Let me invest and also help you. And, uh, and to some extent also back people who I, I very much believe in. I think that, uh, and this, you know, I might be jumping, jumping ahead here and you might have other questions about this later, but I think when people assess companies, especially very, very early, I think they overthink everything. Uh, they're like, well, this market and this particular implementation, I'm not sure, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm very smart. And, and so like, I'm going to pass on it. And sometimes they're right. And then sometimes because, you know, it's just two people in a living room in their pajamas, like it changes. And then two months later, they're not in it and it's, and it's totally changed form and it's amazing and they've missed it. So I think there's a certain, uh, there's a strength to being a little bit uh, naive in, in early investing and being like, you know what? I know you have sat next to you for a few years. You're a workhorse. You're brilliant. Uh, I think this is a little silly, but let's just do it because who knows what this will become. I still think that that's kind of like the best way to, uh, to invest. And I actually have an anecdote about this. I, um, uh, I don't want to go on and on here, but I have a good friend who um, wanted to build an auto insurance company. And again, brilliant person. I, I coded next to him and like he was just, he could sit for 12 hours and just work straight and, you know, graduated like one of the top of his class and like, you know, went to work at AQR, uh, the quantitative hedge fund and just brilliant at math and engineering and everything. And the way that he presents himself, by the way, is hilarious. He mostly is in like shorts and flip-flops and, you know, everyone thinks that he's some sort of like relaxed surfer or whatever, especially when he talks to investors, but he's brilliant. He was not able to raise, you know, the large amount of money that he needed to start this auto insurance company. Uh, and instead he decided uh, after, you know, uh, suffering for about a year, a year and a half, he was like, I'm diabetic. I uh, have never been able to eat good cereal for breakfast. And I'm tired of that. I just want to make zero sugar cereal that I can actually eat. And, you know, a couple of the investors he'd been talking to are like, we're excited about the auto insurance thing, but we're not going to back a stupid cereal company, like, you know, whatever. And I was like, look, like, I just want to back you, um, you know, whether you're doing auto insurance or cereal. And this actually sounds pretty cool and authentic. And, and he's now built it into a fairly large company. It's called Catalina Crunch. Uh, and it's delicious. It's in like a lot of the Whole Foods around the country. And it's, it's amazing. And, you know, he's, he's made a cereal company. Yeah. I love stories like that. Cause it's like, you know, I would love, I mean, who knows if there's data out there, but how many ideas started out down one path and didn't deviate? I think it's very small, small percentage of the, you know, the company started out doing X and they ended up staying. Exactly. Before, so. Exactly. And by the way, like the, the best advantage that you have, you know, instead of asking people like, what do you think of this business model or what do you think of this particular idea? My favorite question almost when I, when I meet other smart people is like, who are the people around you that are sort of like the most driven and like unstoppable folks that, that you've seen from like sitting next to them at work for years or college or whatnot? Because that insight is something that other people cannot see if they've not been next to that person for a while. And that I think is the most important thing.
And then, you know, the caveat is that I think the sandbox that you play in matters. So, you know, if you start building, you know, a serial company, it's unlikely that you're going to end up building like a fintech, like, you know, infrastructure thing, but you never know. Uh, but, you know, sure, like there, there's certain sandboxes and spaces, I think, that are easier than others to build like successful, like, you know, uh, things. But, but yes, always, I think, uh, never, never ignore someone uh, never ignore a redoubtable person. Because from what I gathered, you've invested in over 200 startups. Mm -hmm. Yes. So obviously with 200 startups, it's not like you have your angel investment thesis and you follow that only path of the thesis, right? So Correct. like, I'm sure you're, you know, you're talking about serial company and I'm sure there's, you know, other silos of technology that interest you that you think yep. have the opportunity. So what's, um, how do you make decisions? I mean, so the the people you talked about is a big piece, but what else do you, you know, yeah. matters in terms of? Yeah, there's a couple things. A couple, you know, I don't have like a, a strict rule, but I almost have a couple things that I keep in mind. One is, if I really meet someone exceptional, like just just don't ignore people who have a certain energy or, or whatnot. And it doesn't mean that you have to love them, but don't ignore someone who sort of like pops off the the sheet of paper, uh, because you know the cost, especially if you're making a lot of investments and 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 you know. They're not massive checks. The cost of saying no is really high. And uh, the cost of saying yes and you're wrong and the company fails is you lose your principal. Uh, but you know, you'd be very sad if you pass on something amazing. So I think about, if I look at my list, I think about what I'm upset about. I'm only upset about the companies that I missed uh, and whether I did not pursue them or whether I passed on them or, or whatever. I'm not obsessed about the companies where I'm upset about the companies where I invested and, and it failed. Uh, but to get back to your question, uh, so one is don't ignore someone who sort of jumps off the page, uh, assuming you can have enough enough dry powder. Secondly, I think I used to be 100% about the person. Now I think I'm like 80% about the person, 20% about the space. There, there seems to be, and, and this changes uh, every couple of years, I think, but there seems to be a couple of spaces that just like are better than others right now. Like if you build anything in like FinTech or like general, like, you know, B2B software or SaaS or whatever that has any revenue, like you can be valued at like a hundred X your revenue, whether that's good or not. If you build success in a success, like a successful, like D2C company that sells like razors or whatever, or and take any item from household item, you know, maybe you'll only be valued at like two X or, or, or God knows or, or whatnot. And then what's your mode? Other people will come in, other people will buy ads on Facebook and it's going to be really hard for you to, uh, to keep going. So not all of these spaces come come equal, uh, and I definitely you know I, I I definitely realize now why why software is such an amazing business model. And then again, you know I like to contradict myself. Some of the very best businesses in the world are not at all software and are like incredibly operationally intensive, like take you know Amazon or whatever, and and they build up such flywheels and such moats where like no one can compete with them uh, at that point. And that's where you sort of you know you get the the Peter Thiel monopoly that you want. And so I, you know, these ideas constantly contradict each other. And I think you have to assess every, everything, uh, as it comes to you. So I think the other part of the equation is who is referring the company to you. Uh, a couple of times I made the mistake of, especially like, let's say in the first 10 investments or whatnot, I was like, wow, this very fancy VC or investor is sending me this investment. How nice of them. I'm very lucky. Like if I don't invest in this company, then gonna offend them. they're going to, then they're going to be mad at me and then they're no longer going to send me anything, especially for a small check. So I was like, let me just invest in it. And frankly, yeah, every time I've done that or almost every time it's ended up not being a great investment. Uh, whereas, you know, every time it's been 
someone who's, who's close to one of my good friends or close to one of the companies that I've worked with who sends me something and says, I've known this person for a while. They're amazing. That has been a great investment. Uh, and again, uh, these are just sort of general rules, but uh, these are a couple examples. Interesting. Um, do you like a cold outreach? Like if, if an entrepreneur just reaches out to you blindly, like cold, like yeah. not blindly, but cold, is that like, do you follow up on, on those? Like, have you made investments in on the, you know, more of the cold outreach? Yes. I, I've actually done it. I have a story. I, I'll, I'll tell you in a second, but I, I, my general thought on cold is it's not that big of an issue. There's kind of two problems with cold outreach. It's one that like the world, at least in the U S of like, VC, angel, all that stuff. It's pretty small. As soon as as soon as you meet like one node, let's say you meet, you mentioned Rob Go earlier. If you've met Rob Go, like I'm sure he's connected to a lot of amazing people. Like it, it would be hard to not find someone who would be able to put you in touch. So that's better. And it's almost like the challenge of like, why were you not able to find someone to put you in touch with me? And I think, you know, the second part of that is like, okay, don't be pretentious. Say they were not able to to come in touch with you. But the problem is the wording, and I'm sure you get these, you know, at running a successful podcast. The, run, the wording of these emails sucks. Like they're way too long. They're boring. They sound like, you know, boring scripted messages that you want to like almost unsubscribe from. But if it had been like, you know, two lines, like, hey, I would like really love what you've done with this, that, and it actually sounds like authentic, like they, they, they're not a robot and they're not sending this to 200 people, then I will answer. Uh, and so I think you just want to feel like you're talking to a real person. Now, one, one example that I had that, I, that, uh, that, that was fun is I think last summer, uh, or something like that. I got a message on LinkedIn from this sharp, like young founder who'd worked at Shopify and uh, I think Wealth Simple as well, which is sort of like the Wealthfront competitor based in, in Canada. Uh, it's doing uh, very well. And uh, he was telling me that he was working on something and, and, and he wanted to meet me. And I got on the phone with him same day and I just liked him. And I also looked him up and he seemed to just be like a very sort of like quirky, ambitious person. And I just decided to do essentially uh, his whole like pre-seed round. Essentially, like same day, I was like, I want to do the whole thing and uh, count me in and I'll wire it today. And that, I was just like this really excited about him. And that's part of sort of the new strategy that I'm trying to take of, you know, I like to participate in things that are already going, but but more than anything, I like to be the first one to bet on someone and, and sort of take that whole pre-seed tranche and then help them get more capital, hire and move faster on their idea. So you mentioned, you know, companies that, um, the things that keep you awake at night are the companies that you didn't invest in. So I love mm -hmm. how Bessemer has their anti-portfolio. So what's yes. the one companies that you're like, oh, what a mess. Let's see. I'll pull it up. I have an Evernote. Uh, <laughs> I have an Evernote. Uh, and I definitely add to it a lot. And by the way, the, 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 the trap with these companies, you know, given I've been doing this for six years, but given how long it takes mm -hmm. is that sometimes I have FOMO because they've raised more money. But that not might that might not mean that you know they'll actually be successful. Uh, okay, funny one. This is a funny one. Uh, I uh, you know this is not an Uber-sized company, thankfully. Uh, this is still like an, an amazing success story. I was introduced in New York to the founder of a company called Bombas uh, when they were raising like their very first round, and I think like it was like at a four or five million valuation or something like very reasonable. And, you know, I, I met with him, actually, I think, uh, maybe even with my friend, Abi at the time I was working with, and we were just not that impressed that maybe we were not on during that meeting, but we, we were like, ah, he doesn't seem very sharp. He's kind of boring or whatever. Like 
you know, and he's selling socks, like who cares about socks? And I think he gave me some very nicely. And I think I didn't even try them on because I was an idiot. And I just passed on it. I was like, I don't want to invest in your stupid sock company. That's not what I said. Uh, but, you know, and now it's a massive success and, you know, multi-hundred million dollar company. Uh, and it's the biggest think, success story out of Shark Tank, right? I think that's how their claim on. Oh, yeah. I forgot that they were on Shark Tank. The, uh, I mean, I think at the end, what I didn't know there, see, if someone had told me like this guy, I, I've worked with him. He's so relentless and like he might not be, you know, maybe like Krishna from Catalina, maybe he wasn't the best at pitching on that day, but it's so driven. If someone had told me that, I would have maybe had my eyes uh, wide open and not, you know, I think when you try to make these snap judgments, you sort of trap yourself in your mind in a certain path. And you're like, all right, I've decided this person's not impressive and boring. Now I just want to get out of this meeting and I don't care about these socks instead of sort of like keeping the, uh, the open mind. That's what I was talking a little bit when I think investors try to be too smart and try to like discount things just based on their initial judgment. So that was, that was silly. And that was, um, that was my, uh, my mistake. And then let's see, another cool company that I passed on is uh, Loom. Do you know Loom? Uh, L-O-O-M.com. It's sort of like a very successful video sharing company. If you want to like record, uh, you know, video feedback to, to give to your company. It had, I think at that time they were working on something else and I wasn't that excited about what they were working on. I tried it. What was even more stupid is I was friends with them. I went to like a new year's party with them and they were just hustlers. Like all of them. I just heard these stories of like how you tried to impress this investor and like went to pick him up at the airport to do that. And it's like, never ignore someone who has that type of hustle. And like an idiot, I passed on it and now it's a very successful company. So that's, that's another example. <laughs> Those are awesome ones. Um, all right, well, let's talk about your new initiative here. So Conduit. So what's, yes. what's the details on it? And you know, you found it with, with Shri, your co-founder. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk about kind of what you're solving, like how you came to Definitely. this conclusion. That Definitely. So I think I, I can explain it in a couple of different ways. One is that you know, with like 230 or something companies and then getting introduced to a bunch of people, which I want that to keep happening. I'm not sort of complaining about it. I was, I was going a little bit crazy uh, last fall, I think in New York. And I was taking, you know, I was sleep depriving myself and I was taking like 12 to 15 meetings per day, uh, often with coffee. And uh, I had something which I didn't even know existed. I had like, I think a panic attack pretty much. And uh, I literally was sitting in a meeting with someone that I was actually trying to hire in order to take meetings with me. And I just started freaking out during the meeting and then observing myself freaking out and then freaking out even more about that. And I thought I was going to faint or something. Mm -hmm. And this happened, uh, this happened again. And then I essentially like canceled all meetings for, for three days or whatnot. Uh, and, and I realized that I was overstretching myself first of all, and, and, and that I, you know, I wasn't sort of organized well enough. So I think part one for Conduit is I wanted to, I love the idea of like you go and you lift every rock and you try to find all the, all the sort of hidden treasures under all these rocks. But it's also great if you build a magnet that attracts these people to you so you don't have to suffer so much and sort of like take 50 meetings per day and have, you know, panic attacks. So I think that's one, one thing is like, let's attract really smart people from around the world and, uh, and hopefully sort of help them with their company or maybe even, you know, I get to invest in their company. The other idea is um, having attended a lot of like demo days, you know, at Y Combinator or like let's say Entrepreneur First, which is in London or other things. And in general, seeing like cap tables come together uh, at seed round A and B, I noticed that more and more of the people in the cap table were not only VC funds, but also like wealthy individuals, people who succeeded in other industries, let's say manufacturing or finance or or whatever people from abroad, you know, who want 
access who've done really well in, in these other countries and who want access to like US companies. And I'm thinking like, you know, the, the classic narrative is, hey, you know, find a VC to invest in, just be an LP and be quiet. And, and you know, like, we don't want to hear about you. I don't believe that that's, that, that makes sense because I think a lot of these people can actually do a lot for the companies that they work with. You know, if you're building a new a retail or fashion or clothing company and you have, like, let's say, a large like manufacturing company from a, or family from Turkey invest in you, maybe they can help you like get cheaper like uh, manufacturing or maybe they can help you uh, and open doors for you. And, and there's a bunch of examples like that. And you see that more and more. So there's all this this wealth in the world, all this capital, this wealth of knowledge, and obviously of, of resources that wants access to startups. And currently, they don't really have many options apart from investing in VC funds. And so we wanted to open up all that and 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 give them access. And and you know even though VC has become more and more and more and more popular, if you look at it just from a numbers point of view, like the large VC funds are a couple billion dollars, right, under under management. And then you have SoftBank, which is like a freak, but still, despite all that stuff, the large VC funds are still a drop in the water, uh, a drop in the ocean compared to sort of like general finance in the world or private equity or all that stuff. And so why not give, you know, give these other people access to bring in a bunch more money in the space. And also this is sort of my, my philosophical point of view here, but like put that money to work in more interesting places than, you know, Hey, let's invest in these, uh, and these boring bonds or let's do whatever and just protect our wealth or buy some paintings and keep them in a cellar and in Zurich. Like how about, you know, just back this cool company that's going to have an impact instead. Um, so that's, that's part of the other thinking. And then I'd say that the third part is um, giving people access uh, who did not have access before, not only from the investor side, but from the, the, the company side, like I, I consider myself more of a founder than a, an investor. And, I love it when people wire me money to invest in my company and then help me, you know, it's sort of like, it's crazy. They're like almost wiring me money in order to help me. And these people by definition, you know, they do something else. They have jobs like the head of product at this company or an executive at like Walt Disney doesn't spend their whole day like me meeting startups, but might be a great fit for a particular startup and might be able to help them. They would not otherwise meet that would not otherwise happen. So we're trying to make meetings happen that would not otherwise. So, so how does it work? Because there's, you know, two sides to it. There's the companies and like both sides need to apply, right? So if, if someone does want to join as an investor, if someone wants to, you know, pitch their company and be part of the, the platform in, in that capacity, you have to apply. Yeah. So how are you, you know, vetting both sides? Yeah, the way it works. So it, it is, you know, application on both sides. The idea is like there's a certain understanding from, from investors and companies that's going to be quality. It's going to be vetted. It's going to be sort of like people that have been reviewed. Frankly, at this point, it's, you know, Three, myself, and and you know a couple other folks uh, who we work with sometimes who review these these opportunities. You know we have a couple of great kind of like angels that we got on board uh, to to back us uh, for for conduit mostly because we wanted them uh, involved, and we trust their opinion, our opinion, and their referrals. And you know I think at the end of the day we're almost like a, you know having taken a lot of meetings, we're almost like programs or AIs that have been trained to sort of like look at look at companies and, uh, and, and, and decide whether we find them interesting. It is subjective by nature because there's no objective way to, to rank startups. There, there might not even be an objective way to, to rank like publicly traded companies, you know, on the NASDAQ. Uh, I mean, you can look at their, their revenue and what they did last quarter, but startups even less so. It's like, I think this person is impressive. You think they're not impressive, whatever. Uh, but I think it's, it's our internal algorithm of, of sort of our judgments and the judgment of the people who are uh, uh, around us 
and you know what market they're in, uh, what's their background, are they impressive, like what type of traction they have, uh, how do they present what they're doing, what's their vision, and so on. We're probably going to say no to exceptional people, uh, but hopefully we won't make that many mistakes. And hopefully, you know, if we think they have something impressive, we want to give them access, and we want to just give them access to this this community where they can. Uh, they can meet great angels, they can meet great advisors, they can meet investors, and then there's also all this other stuff. We have these office hours. You were talking, you know, earlier about the Warby Parker people, like they were very nice and they they did office hours on Conduit. There's there's very much this desire to sort of like for these successful founders to to give back and to also sort of like educate a new wave of uh, of entrepreneurs. And then in their own interest as well, maybe they get access to a great a great investment from that. And on the investor side. We try to not over-index too quickly on, you know, let's get every VC on there because I think it's everyone knows who the VCs are. They're on Crunchbase and you can see the lists. Um, we tried to start and make our, our culture like weighted heavily on these these operators, right? A word that everyone loves to use now, but like sort of like these people who have done something, who've built something, who know how to like actually, you know, work on product, who know how to sell, who know how to do uh, whatever. And then... The, the second tranche of that is these operators from other industries, these family offices, these experts. It's almost like another way to describe it is it's almost like an expert network. Uh, you know, I'm a fan of like GLG is interesting. It's almost like an expert network, but where these people, these experts also kind of like get access to interesting investment opportunities. Because there is a uh, subscription that they have to pay for, like if they want different yeah. deal flow or Currently, we're not charging companies, and that's because we, if we do one day, it might be because we we give them uh, help on their on uh, you know sort of hands-on help with something. But currently, we've decided not to charge companies because we we just don't want adverse selection. We want to attract the best companies, and by definition, they're, you know, they're going to be looking for capital, so we we don't want to charge them right now. Uh, we're charging investors uh, essentially. So there, there's a basic thing that is that is free, which is you know you can see a couple of things opportunities a week and 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 that's great. If you want to see the whole list, you've got to pay. And the other thing we realized is that when people pay, this is sort of one of these human psychology things, they value something more and they're actually more engaged. Uh, and they actually sort of, you know, say, all right, I'm paying for this. I better interact with these people on there. Uh, and then, you know, there might be other tiers we do in the future that, you know, maybe we'll give people early access to things or whatnot. But sort of that's the idea right now. It's the more engaged, active investors, and many, many of them have sourced great investments from Conduit. Uh, you know, they, they pay per month to, to see things on there and, and to be part of it. That is so true. I've seen that many times through the years of even if you charge just a little amount, it makes a world of difference. If it's free, they just ignore it and don't invest totally. into it. It's so true. So the obvious question is like, so like, wh why wouldn't someone just, you know, go to AngelList, right? Yeah. Like, so, yeah, I mean, I, I have nothing. Uh, first of all, I have nothing against AngelList. And I think that uh, we're not necessarily trying to replace anything here. Uh, you know, AngelList has millions of users and and they were uh, early and they did an amazing job mapping out essentially the startup ecosystem online. And now they're doing all this great stuff with these funds and these rolling funds. And I think that's amazing. The um, they're To me, they're kind of like, you know, the Facebook of like tech. Uh, I think for, for us, we're just trying to, we're just making these introductions uh, for people who want to invest in each other. And that, that sort of interaction doesn't really happen on, on AngelList. You know, we actually sort of actively on the back end think about who might enjoy meeting who. And, uh, and we're almost like a matchmaker as well. Of course, like you can, you can yourself request introduction to investors or companies, uh, but it is sort of like this, this uh, tight knit group with high trust because it's application only. 
And so it's just a totally like, it's a totally different thing. And frankly, like a lot of the companies are on both. Yeah, no, it's very, I mean, you could tell it's more of a high touch, you know, things are flushed out and on angel list, you can join a syndicate and get access to deal flow, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a very different type of experience. I'm sure. That's right. Yeah. So what's the goal like for this, like, like kind of short term and like, what do you envision long term of the type of impact? The goal for conduit is to have, uh, every interesting investor in the world on it, um, on the investor side and to be a magnet for every great founder and founder to be in the world. And then perhaps in the future as well, to attract people who want to join, uh, we're doing this as well, but people who want to join companies and uh, to just be this, this general magnet for exceptional people on all ends. Uh, and if I think about it, like, again, like, you know, you have a couple, like really, you have a, a couple hundred, let's say, or a couple thousand really active angels uh, worldwide that are already sort of mapped out in the market. You have a lot of VCs, great, we'll get them on there. What we're talking about is, is creating this new thing that it was not created. Like you have all these like Fortune 500 or Fortune 5,000 companies and the ones abroad, you know, in, in Tokyo and in Paris and in Berlin and in like Mumbai or, or whatever, all these, com- all these executives working there for this wealth of knowledge and who have resources to invest in things. We want them on conduit. And then, you know, we want, if you're building like a new like media company and you want to ex- expand sort of internationally, like why could you not get an angel from like, India and an, and an angel from sort of like Austria or whatever who are going to help you sort of like grow your your uh, your presence there. Uh, we there's this there's this global idea of sort of like attracting uh, all these people and and then I think um, that's a positioning. This is a side note, but this is a positioning that I've been able to 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 do I think pretty well investing between Europe and the U.S. When I invest in European companies, they want access to U.S. investors. When I invest in U.S. companies, often you know they're kind of excited to have access to a couple of European people. So playing bridge between being a bridge between these different places and worlds is actually quite interesting. So we want Conduit to be this magnet for exceptional people. And the romantic, the other romantic way that I like to describe it is we want to just be this serendipity machine. We want you to have raised you know your round from your great people because of Conduit. Maybe we want you to be able to sell your company thanks to Conduit, thanks to that sort of M&A strategic introduction because MA is really hard and no one really knows how to do it uh and so the, the little tagline on the website right now is you know where capital meets opportunity uh yeah we just want to be sort of this this alchemist so shifting back to angel investing like what advice would you give to you know people regardless of where they're at in their you know age or stage of their career or whatever like how should they get started because you know we, we talked about conduit like maybe if they're you know chief product officer somewhere and they're like wow i can or, you know, they're in sales and they're like, wow, I, I really think I'd want to start just investing in companies and joining AngelList or something. But like, like how, how should someone think about the process of getting started and actually building their deal flow and making mm-hmm. investments? I think the, uh, it, it will, the one lens is to always observe it from the point of view, like who will be your customer? Your customer will be the companies that you work with, the startups. And so why will they want to accept you? You know, why will they want to work with you? I'll be not only accept you, why will they ask for an introduction to you? And it might be because you have something that they, it's often because you have something that they want. So, you know, as you said, like if they're the head of product at Snap and you're building like an exciting new consumer thing, like they'll probably, if they find out that you're investing, they'll be like, oh my God, we want that person. They're great, you know? Or if, uh, if you have some sort of platform, you know, hopefully, Conduit is a magnet. They're like, wow, we want access to Conduit. So, you know, we want to meet Sri and Edward, uh, of course. Uh, I, I think if you have, you know, or VentureFizz, like, I, I think 
anything that, that sort of gives uh, gives you an edge and, and could give them like distribution or whatnot can be amazing. From a getting the capital point of view, because that's also important, what's, ex- what's incredible these days is that you see this whole new uh, slew of, um, of like micromanagers where it's, it's easier than ever to spin up a, a fund. You know, it used to be extremely, extremely annoying paperwork wise. It's it still is, but like uh, some platforms make it easy to just like spin that up quite easily. And, um, and quickly, and, and you don't have to deal with the headache, they deal with the headache. And, uh, and then you can, you know, you can attract, uh, there's a lot of people backing new managers. And uh, so whether you're doing it with your own capital, which is, you know, by definition, angel investing, or whether you're, you're sort of just a, a seed manager, an emerging seed manager, I think, A, there's way more people willing to back you. And they can be, you know, 25 or 50k checks at, the t- at a time, and that's fine. Um, and, you know, B, I think it's by definition, it also means that you're probably doing something else and whatever operating role you have is the thing to, to get the company excited about. And that's the whole thesis of, of, of conduit. You know, if you are the, uh, yeah, if you just become the authority in your space, you're working at a fintech company and you just, you know, you, you know how to get the, the regulatory stuff done, or, you know, how to, you know, uh, do something, you know how to grow uh, a D2C company, head of growth of like this cool thing, then by definition, I think you're an expert that these companies are going to want. So I would say it's uh, it's positioning yourself as such. And some people like to be loud. I actually usually, I don't like to be that loud on Twitter or whatever. Some people are like amazing at it and, and that's their thing. But you can be loud in different ways and you can also just become, uh, you know, like one of the companies that I'm involved with that I sort of was the first investor in is has not launched yet. They're kind of uh, you know, stealth, as, as people like to say, and they're sort of like an exciting new like um, way for people to create reports for their for their companies using their data, and like it's a, it's a complicated kind of like B two B product. And the founder there, my friend Mary, was we had a bunch of fancy investors come into the round. I think the person that she was most excited about was definitely not me. Was uh, this woman uh, Julie Dro, uh, who was I think VP of product at Facebook for a while. And who is essentially like a legend in you know in the valley, and she's written I think a book about it and all that stuff. And Mary was just like Julie will know how to like do this. You know, it's almost like she's going to invest, and then I'm going to get to talk to her, and she's going to teach me how to build my company. I, I'm joking, but like that's that's the idea with Conduit, and I, that's why you know I've had great backers like Nat from from Platter and Health, and uh, you know I'm not building a healthcare company right now, uh, but he is just razor sharp on recruiting on. Uh, just in general, like moving, moving quickly. And so it is amazing when they sort of invest in you and you almost can't believe that they're you know, not only sort of backing you up, but, but also sort of making their time available to you. Yeah. I, that's a great story. Cause it's so true. It's like, you know, um, raising capital is hard, but it's more than the actual cash infusion. It's, you know, what are they providing you in terms of helping propel your business forward? So having access to the former VP of product at Facebook and, running ideas or being able to text that person and just like that just you can't put a value on that it's amazing and you get to almost like if you if it works out and you know you get to almost become friends right that's the other thing like i've gotten the chance to build companies with a lot of my closest friends like uh, you know sort of was involved in helping misfits market get off the ground with my friend abby who i'd mentioned earlier and uh another company called adam finance with my other really good friend from from college eric and uh you know conduit now with three and uh, Mary is also a very good friend. Like you, all these people, same thing. Like you're the people who backed us early. I think now we're sort of, you know, we're texting back and forth. They're helping us. They're giving us advice. 
you build these great new relationships that are that are uh, a meaningful part of your life. I think not only with work. Now let's talk about the the downside, right? Like because. I do like that there's a spotlight on entrepreneurship, the tech industry, and then you've got, you know, big names that get the spotlight, like Gary Vee or, you know, Jason Calacanis, right? So it's like, wow, I've, you know, I've invested in 20 unicorns. And really, so you see that from the outside. I'm like, wow, I need to get involved. Yet there's other people that say, well, your first like 30 investments, you can just pretty much wash that cash away because the likelihood of you hitting a success is pretty rare right like i don't know if 30 was the number but yeah I, you know like you know i uh there, there are people with uh you know much more experience than than me and and i remember uh, one of them was like i don't know if you know one gets better at investing over time and and actually i, I kind of disagree with that i think that you probably do because you sort of tune yourself as a radar but the funny thing is i think a couple of my very best investments were my very first investments mm. and so i think it depends i think you know if you're like Tech is amazing. Startups are amazing. I want to invest in startups. Let me like, you know, in invest my own money or like set up a little fund and then like, you know, somehow like find people on AngelList or find people at YC Demo Day, reach out to them and ask to invest. That might be like shooting, you know, arrows in the dark or, or whatever. Uh, but if you're like, I want to invest because I'm surrounded by great people and like, oh my God, I know they're going to crush it. And I just, some, how do I become a part of this? I'm going to be sad if I, you know, don't get to work with them or don't get don't get to be at least a small part of it i just want to back to people around me that is a great way to do it so i think if it's that insight again of you don't have to be an expert in you know uh i don't know like in any topic frankly you just need to just have interesting people around you and back them and just sit back and do what they do so i would imagine based on uh making i think you said 230 investments and that's growing you've got conduit um you know, you're well networked. Like, how, how do you manage your time? Like, your inbox must be out of control. I do. Let's see. So, the email thing, the one good or bad habit that I have is I also use my, um, I used to, I do this less. I use my inbox as a to do list. Uh, so, I email yeah. myself a lot. And I can't get uh, out of that trap. It's just, it is what it is. I know. And it's very, it's very convenient to do that. The problem is that, uh, when I look at these emails, I'm sure you have these, there's always like the couple emails that you like leave on red or you like open them and then you mark them on red again and you leave those there for like a week or two. Mm -hmm. And you're like, God, like this is nagging me. Like, how do I get rid of it? Uh, that's always like a decision that you have to make. I feel like it's either, it's either a decision that you have to make or something really painful that's like administrative or like, you know, tax related or like, I got to go here and log in here, or like write a check or print something or fax something. It's like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? So, uh, one is I try to like once in a while I just go crazy and I just breeze through it and just this just I just decide I'm like I'm just gonna do it and I'm not gonna do it any better tomorrow I know I'm not gonna do it perfectly right now but I, I I'm not gonna do it any better today tomorrow yesterday let me just get through it secondly is I'm lucky to work with a great team like Sri helps me look at a lot of, of companies and you know I also uh, work with people who help me uh, do some of these administrative things that I'm not that good at and uh, and that I don't you know want to spend my time on. Uh, and then I would say, you know, one thing I think, I think, uh, productivity tricks are a little bit overrated. Like I think people at the end of the day just do work and, and sort of don't overthink it. And, and I don't like people who say that they like do yoga at 5am and meditate for 30 minutes and then like have their ginseng tea and then, you know, like do their gratitude exercise. It's like at a certain point, just like get to work, stop the bullshit. But I think, um, you know, a couple of things like 
it, it's definitely valuable to just try to do a lot of like your calls like back to back or to like you know on my calendar i'll often now more and more i'm very happy when i like put an event that's like five hours long and i'm like keep open and i have nothing for five hours it's like amazing uh, and then i'm very happy when i have you know six meetings back to back but I, I like this idea of sort of like batching these uh i think that's a fine trick uh, but apart from that the, the one little secret that i've discovered is that even if your job is to meet people which i guess mine is is uh to, to a large extent having open time where by definition you're not on a call with someone or you're not in a meeting with someone is actually very powerful because it allows you to make your own plan of your own war plan where you're not only sort of responding to the incoming sort of attacks let's say on your on your castle or whatnot but you're sort of figuring out okay what's my war plan so let me think this week this month or like what am i doing why am i doing these things got it who do i want to reach out to more people like this do i want to like hire someone to help me with that i think that is uh you know very underrated what do you like to do outside of work uh nothing no i i like to <laughs> yeah, i i like to uh, i love i still love to read love to write i do not like to read nonfiction books. I don't understand. I mean, I, I do read a couple because there's a couple of really good ones, but I think especially in like startups and all that stuff, like people are all about these management books or these like startup books or a high output management and all that stuff. And like, they're fine. But I think that it's the same thing as if you go to business school as an undergrad and you only take like, you know, business classes. I think you just, your, your mind becomes a little bit dull. The, I love to read like great fiction. I love to read great works and, and you don't get anything pragmatic from it. You know, you're not going to read like Fitzgerald and say like, great, this is the three processes with which I'm going to run my company. But the way that he takes, the way that these great uh, works, I think, take you, uh, or the, the sort of uh, the things that they make you live experience-wise, I think uh, actually sort of create you as a person. And, and, and by definition, I think if your job is to interact with people, make decisions or whatnot, uh, part of whether you do it well or not has to do with how, how sharpened your sort of, you know, your soul is or how sharpened your sort of uh, way to, to take in the world and observe the world is. And I think these things do make you more sensitive and they're a little bit underrated. So maybe that's my European side, but I love to read, love to write, love to play tennis. Uh, very happy when I get to play tennis every day. When I was 10, I thought I wanted to be a professional tennis player. Uh, and um, what else? Love, love to travel, uh, love to learn new languages uh and uh, and spend time with friends but that, that often ends up being you know working on startups with them uh but that's uh that's it and a new habit that i uh or new new interest that i sort of took up during uh during these crazy times is uh wine tasting i have a very good friend of mine who is a, a som on top of being you should have in the podcast at some point he uh he worked at bridgewater he did uh rotc i think uh and he also taught himself how to or he, he became a som and as a French person, I was supposed to be knowledgeable about wine. Uh, but my knowledge, I think, was like, you know, maybe let's say it was two out of 10. Right. I think now it's like four out of 10, which is not bad. And I pretentiously show my other friends how to taste wine now and, and, and enjoy it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's something that I would definitely need to learn. I'm, I'm more of the uh, beer IPA snob, but uh, the wine, wine side, I definitely have, would have a lot to That's learn. another art. He knows how to taste beer too, actually. So that's maybe you should chat about that at some point. That sounds like a plan. Well, Edward, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all the great things that you've been up to with Conduit and investing in other companies and uh, all the great advice for our audience. Thank you. And thanks for the great questions. 
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.